Amen. Lord, that is so true. There's nothing that compares to the promise, to the hope, to the joy, to the inheritance, to the future, to the blessings that we have in knowing you. And Lord, I just pray as we go to your word, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 32. We're going to look at the second half of the Song of Moses. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you will need one. Don't be shy. I was gone for a week. You guys all fall asleep on me or what's going on? All right. Amen. It's good to be back. Hey, a couple quick things. I wanted to say first, uh, heard good things about Sunday and Wednesday. We're blessed to have some gifted Bible teachers, so I, was, I heard really good things, and praise the Lord for that. Um, second of all, I, we were away for vacation. I was visiting a close friend and his family in upstate New York. I've never been back there. Man, that's a beautiful place. But I met a guy and his wife, uh, a young guy. He's planting a church in upstate New York, and actually the city's name is Corinth, like Corinth, like in the Bible. And it's this little town out in the middle of nowhere, and he was really been struggling and you know, I had a chance to really encourage him. I got an email from him today, and he really wants us as a church, or me in particular, to just hold him up, keep him accountable. So my heart is that we can be praying for them. Think of Scott and Gloria, Calvary Chapel, Corinth, New York. So if you can think about it, pray for them. Um, you, know, you know, it snows there, it's cold there. They're out in the middle of nowhere in a little tiny town. Church is fairly new, got about 30 people. But God's doing a great work, and I just have a heart for him and want to as us as a church, how we can minister to them in any way that we can. They're kind of about isolated. It's hard. When you're planting a church and there's nobody really near you to encourage you, certainly the Holy Spirit's with them. But be praying for them. And then, the, and then also my daughter Ashley's back from India, so praise God for that. I'm very excited about that. And either next Wednesday or the Wednesday after, she's going to take about 10 or 15 minutes. She's putting together a little DVD uh, presentation on her trip to India. So um, Lord willing, you'll get to share it. She's down, I think, with the youth group tonight. She may be back down here in a little while. All right, with that being said, Deuteronomy 32. Now, Deuteronomy 32, we're getting toward the close of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. We've come now to the Song of Moses. This is Moses' 120th birthday. He's about to literally die. This is about his last words, almost. We've got one more chapter after this. And now, in the very end, God commands Moses to teach the children of Israel a song. We've talked about why. One of the reasons I believe very clearly is sermons are often forgotten, but songs rarely are. It's amazing how you'll sing a song from 25 years ago, and you, know, you hear it on the radio, and you're right back in junior high. You know what I mean? And it's so true that he was teaching them the song. They were to sing it. They were to pass it on to the next generation. It was to be a constant reminder of all they had gone through, all that God had done for them. Now, this is the first ever published song. It's 43 verses long. It's very exhortive, again, to be memorized by the people. It was to remind Israel of the character of God, the greatness of God, and the wickedness of them as a nation. We saw two weeks ago when I was here that though the nation had been blessed more than any other, they had grown fat or would grow fat. They would provoke God to jealousy. They would be a nation void of counsel. They'd be a nation without understanding. Even though God had shown them so much, they would be a nation without understanding, a nation that would provoke him to anger, provoke him to jealousy. You know, and that just grips my heart when I think about it, because I know how much of God's grace and love I've been exposed to. 
And how dare I turn any other place but to Him? Where else am I going to go? Who else should I turn to? And we as a, this last day's generation have had greater uh, just input of God's Word, of the move of His Spirit. We've got all of it in our hands. There's nothing else coming, you guys, except for Christ. Amen? We've got the completed revelation in our hands, and we should be blessed by it. And we'll see again, we've seen so far in this song, the character of Israel, their wicked behavior in contrast with the character of God. Tonight we'll continue to look at God's divine judgment or His vengeance upon His enemies, and then also, in contrast, His atonement for those who would turn to Him. Remember again, as we go through this, this was a song. Remember as we're going through these heavy-duty exhortations, this was to be remembered by every single Israelite, passed on generation to generation, to remember the character of God, the greatness of God. So if I title tonight's message, I would title it, Vengeance and Atonement. We have the vengeance of God, the, the righteous judgment of God, but also the grace of God. And we see the clear contrast in the remaining verses. So let's pick up in verse 31, looking again at the vengeance of God against His enemies. And then we'll finish off with Moses' exhortation to the children and His command to go up on Mount Nebo, where He would eventually die. So let's pick up in verse 31. And again, this is God's vengeance against those who would turn against Him. Verse 31, For their rock is not like our rock. Now in the previous verses, He said the nation was void of counsel, that they are turning away from God, they were provoking Him to jealousy, and now He says, speaking of the false gods that they would be tempted to fall away to, He said their rock is not like our rock. You know, there is no other rock like our rock. Amen? The rock of ages, Almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Almighty God, our best friend. And there is no other God like Him. There is no other God besides Him, as we're going to see later on in the text. And he says, their rock is not our, like our rock. You know what? Our rock is the rock of ages, and their rocks are piles of rocks. And I meant to bring it with me, and I didn't, but my daughter sent me a postcard from India and one of the postcards she sent me is a picture of this big rock. Looks like it's about 50 feet tall, carved in the shape of a, I don't know what, some kind of God holding up fingers and, you know, and all these people worshiping it. They're worshiping a rock. And we worship the rock, amen? And he's saying very clearly here, there is no rock like our rock, the true rock, the living rock, the rock of salvation, the rock of ages, almighty God. Even our enemies themselves being judges. You know, there's no rock like our rock, even if you ask our enemies. What do the other, what do the enemies of God say about God? What do the enemies of Israel say about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, it says in Exodus, Let us free from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. In 1 Samuel 4, 7 and 8, So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. You know what? The enemies of Israel knew the power of their God. And the sad thing is, that there were actually times when the enemies of God feared God more than His own children. Think about that. The enemies of God feared God even more than His own children, often in the Old Testament, and often today. And it is so sad. 
Why in the world would we not fear God? We know Him. We know His power. We know His greatness. We know His might. No matter how great you think He is, He's greater than that. No matter how powerful you think He is, He's more powerful than that. And the greatest miracle is He's transformed our lives. We were once dead in our sins and now we're new creations in Christ. And the power of what He's done in our lives ought to be something that radiates from us everywhere we go. And sadly, we see in this text, there would come a time where the enemies would fear God more than His own children. They would recognize His power more than His own children. You know, today, it's like nobody recognizes the power of God. There's very little fear of God. And that's one of the biggest problems we have in the world today. Speaking of those who serve their false gods, look at verse 32. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, and their fields of Gomorrah. If you've ever spent any much time in the Bible at all, you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had disdained for God. They were warned repeatedly to turn away from their sin. They rejected God. They continued on in their sin. And God rained fire down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped it off the face of the earth. It's believed that now it's at the depths of the Dead Sea. Wiped out completely. Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, you know what? Their vine, the thing that, that they produce is death. The false gods produce death. The true and living God produces life. The false gods of this world that anybody, any other man can chase will only bring destruction. And the God that we serve produces joy and peace. And, and that peace that surpasses all understanding. That incredible joy and the knowledge of Almighty God. Knowing God in a personal way. And life and life more abundant and eternal life that begins not after we die but here and now. And what he's saying is the vine, what they produce, what grows out of these false gods is the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. It's fruitless. It's depravity and wickedness that grow from serving false gods. You know when we serve the false gods of this world, only depravity and wickedness and eventually destruction can come from it. Nothing good comes from serving false gods. I've heard people say, well, as long as you serve something, you know, as long as you serve something... Well, no, if you're serving Satan, it's not good. And we saw last time that any idol that you serve, any idol that you pray to, he said is worshiping Satan, worshiping the devil. Pastor Dave, that's pretty narrow. No, the Bible says either you're for me or you're against me. That's what the Lord says. You're either on his side or you're in opposition to him. And we're going to see as we get to the end of the text today, there's such a clear difference and there's such a clear contrast in the, in the results that come from it. And it's tragic. And it ought to break our hearts. Can I tell you that I'm not leaving because you're stuck with me. But you know what? Can I tell you this? When I was in upstate New York and I went and visited the church I visited, and it was painful. The poor brother, not the guy that we're praying for. It was another church. And it was just painful. And I thought, these poor people need the Word of God so bad. And I'm talking to my friends, and they haven't been able to find a church within 150 miles of their house. Nobody teaching the Word. And I just wish, you know, again, Lord, just cut me in half, clone me, and send me over there. Let me stay here. But I want, why? Because my heart breaks for people that don't know the true and living God. My heart breaks for them. It ought to break our hearts. It ought to tear us apart. And sadly, too often, we just walk down the street busy about what we're doing, not even worrying about those who are facing eternity separated from God. And he says the vine of serving these false gods is Sodom. It's Gomorrah. It's destruction. It's wickedness. It doesn't come to any good. There is no fruit. Speaking of their fruits, 
Their grapes are the grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their grapes, the fruit they produce, their actions are poisonous and are bitter. I've had people say again that, hey, there are people that, you know, live really good moral lives and I think they have a good impact on the world. You know what? No, they don't. Because what it gets down to is we can make people feel good about the fact that they're separated from God. Make them feel comfortable in the fact that, hey, I'm a good person. Well, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And so when we start propagating the goodness of man, we have misunderstood the greatness of God and how we all fall short. And so we see here that he says the grapes or the fruit is gall. The fruit of what they produce is bitterness. The fruit of what they produce is destructive. There's nothing good in the serving of the false gods of this world. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Their wine, their system of doctrine, their belief, their teaching is fatal and destructive to all who follow it. And notice, it's the bite of a serpent. Who's the serpent represent in the Bible? Satan. And you know what? Serving these other gods is not just a choice or a different path or a different way, contrary to what the religious section of the Santa Cruz Sentinel might tell you. You go through there and there's 85 things listed and 83 of them have nothing to do with the true and living God. All about Baha'i faith and the, the spherical, metaphysical, whatever. And, and it just breaks your heart because you look and you think, Lord, this is the, the wine of, vine of destruction. This is no, there's no fruit in this. And you know what? These people are looking for something, but they're looking in the wrong place. They need to look up. And you know what? We need to be the ones that share the love of God. They need to see Jesus in us. We need to provoke them to jealousy because we have the love of God in us. There's nothing greater. It ought to be contagious. And sadly, it says there that it's the bite of a serpent. Literally, it's the bite of poison. It kills. That's what Satan seeks to do. The Bible says he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. The wickedness of those who God would bring to judgment. Again, righteous judgment. And it's interesting that he says of these people that their lives are fruitless, but you know what? He's going to use them to bring judgment upon Israel. Incredible. These ones whose grapes are you know, destruction and bitterness and their, their wine is of no value. And he says, I'm going to use them to bring judgment upon Israel. Those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. And you know what? The people that he would use were about as wicked as they came. Verse 34. And I want to say this. God's righteous judgment will always be brought against sin and rebellion. And sometimes he's even going to use ungodly instruments. You know what? We can disobey God and our unsaved boss can be the one that God uses to bring judgment. Amen? The unsaved police officer can pull you over on the side of the road. God will use even those who don't know him to bring about his judgment. But again, know that the wicked also will face divine judgment. Verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Is what not laid up? He's referring to his vengeance, as we're going to see in the next verse. Upon the enemies of Israel and of God. Though God would let the enemies bring judgment upon Israel, he would still hold these enemies accountable for their wickedness and repay them for their evil. They may think they are safe from God's judgment since they've defeated God's people, defeated God's ways, his power again, but at the same time, they need to know that they're not going to escape God's judgment. He's sealed it up among his treasures. He's protecting his vengeance against those 
who are walking in wickedness. Now, there are those today who think they're defeating God. Do you know that? There are those in a holy war against God. Jihad, right? All this stuff, holy war against God. There are those who are trying to take God out of the schools and take God out of, you know, every public building. And you know what? They think they're winning a war against God. But guess what? If there's no repentance, they're in for a rude awakening. Because you never will defeat God. You can't put God down. He'll always be God. He'll always be in control. He'll always be Savior. You can't stop God. God's grace is not God's permission. And those promoting wickedness, blaspheming, attacking, and rebelling against God will face His righteous judgment. While all have sinned and will be judged, those who arrogantly flaunt their wickedness and contempt for God again are in, a, in for a rude awakening. You know, those who mock and are pro-baby killing. We see this right now. We've got a judge being put up, right? Everybody's worried that Roe v. Wade would be turned over. Imagine that if we stopped slaughtering babies. How tragic would that be? And these are the same people that are protesting us protecting innocent people in Iraq. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get political very often, but let me just tell you something. We need to save the babies and protect the people, not the other way around. And we're too often to, you know, being politically correct, we're more worried about whales and trees than we are babies. Something's wrong. And you know what? God will not stand by forever. And those who think that they're ruling over God, those who abuse children, those who try to quiet the gospel, the ACLU, the Anti-Christian Liberties Union, it's what it is. You know what? I'm going to say it. I don't care. You know, John Corson said the ACLU wants to get rid of all the nativity scenes because they have neither three wise men nor a virgin. I didn't, I'm just quoting somebody. But you know what? It's so true. But there's no wisdom in trying to attack God. You may think you've won for a moment, but ultimately you'll stand before Him. And nobody's going to escape it. And He's saying their wickedness, you know what? I've sealed it up. I, it's not going to get by me, guys. I'm not going to forget. And those who attack him will face him one day. Now, the next verse is a verse that was used by Jonathan Edwards to share what I believe was one of the greatest messages in the history of the United States of America. It brought about the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Powerful. God used it mightily. Let's look at verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. The title of the message, if you ever want to look it up on the internet, is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have ever heard of that message before? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Men, one of the quotes he makes is, Men are walking over a fiery pit on an icy plank. Now understand that Jonathan Edwards was not a man with a booming, powerful voice. He was a man with a high-pitched voice, a man dim, with dim eyesight, who didn't speak with great authority. But you know what? When he spoke the, these words of this message, during that time, the people wailed and came on their hands and knees to get right with God. Edwards said, you're playing with fire and you're hanging by a thread. You know, people came to this country at one point seeking a place to worship God. And they got caught up in materialism and the things of this world. And they took their eyes off of God. And the message of verse 35 is there is going to be righteous judgment. And we all need to be ready. And this is not a light message. This is not a seeker-sensitive message. This is not a user-friendly message. But this is the Word of God. 
This is the message of John the Baptist. This is the message of the Apostle Paul. This is the message of all the Old Testament saints. This is the message of Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the word of God. Amen? And we don't want to hear that sometimes, but repentance is a good thing. It means I'm turning away from that which will kill me, turning to that which will restore me. Turning away from that which will destroy me and bring pain and suffering to that which will give me eternal life. Repentance is a great thing. Now let's look at the rest of this verse here. Their foot shall slip in due time. You know what? Those who do not know God have not repented. Those who, again, are standing under His vengeance are always exposed to destruction. They're one who stands in a slippery place that is exposed to fall. It's not a matter of if they will fall, but when. And the message here is their foot might slip, their foot shall slip in due time. In Psalm 73, in addressing the tragedy of wickedness, he says, Surely you set them in a slippery place and you cast them down to destruction. God's vengeance upon unrighteousness is inescapable. You cannot escape it. You cannot avoid it without repentance. You will not. There's no way around it. There's no coming back a second time. There's no reincarnation. This is it. Appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. This is it. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's all that matters. You would think from the way we live our lives that a lot of other things really matter, but they don't. God's vengeance upon unrighteousness is inescapable. It will come in due time. Man's hand cannot be strong when God rises up. Then he says, For the day of their calamity is at hand. Not only is it inescapable, but it's imminent. Not only is it something you cannot get away from, it's something that is very near. He says there, For the day of their calamity is a million years away. He says the day of their calamity is at hand. It's near them. It's now. And you know what? As believers, we should be blessed to know that we've been saved from it, but it should give us a burden for those who have not yet. You've heard me say it before. Every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. It should be the greatest passion that we have. You know what? When I was away for seven days, I was praying fervently, God, just show, give me the vision for our church. What are we supposed to be about? And he kept bringing me back to the Great Commission. Why do we exist? Why? To go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. To see the lost saved. To see Santa Cruz, Holy Cross, become that again. God can do it. But you know what? We need to not take heaven and hell lightly. It's not something we should gloss over. The Lord certainly didn't, and neither should we. We, again, He will come quicker than we expect. The Bible says that life is but a vapor. We have no promise of tomorrow. In a twinkling of an eye, it's going to be over. And can I tell you, I'm ready. I know about you, I'm ready. We were having some radical turbulence on the plane. I mean radical. And you know what? Some people were kind of getting a little pitchy. It was a little tiny plane flying from D.C. to New York. It was on the way back. And you know, my whole family was on the plane with me, and I even said a silent prayer, Lord, it's time, take us down. Because you know what? My whole family, let's just go together. Let's just all go and be done with it. You know, Joe and Bill and the other guy, take the church. I don't, you know, I'll be in heaven. It's all good. God will work it out. And you know what? There needs to be that kind of peace. We should not take our lives because let God, he's the one that takes it. 
He's the one that, that raises it up, and he's the one that brings it down. But, you know, if he was ready to bring it down, I was like, I'm ready. I'd just as soon see Jesus face to face right now. He'd be just fine with me. And you know what? There needs to be that passion and that excitement about what's coming, but also an urgency in our hearts because it's so near. It's not only inescapable, but it's imminent, the fact that God's vengeance is coming upon those who don't know Him. And the things to come hasten upon them. Not only is it inescapable, not only is it imminent, but it's coming without warning. There's not going to be a siren that goes off half an hour before the rapture. Woo! Woo! You know, right? Everybody get ready! Come in, right? Repent! No, it's going to happen. And you know what? We don't have, we, we don't have the promise that all of us are going to be here on Sunday. Get hit by a bus on the way outside. We absolutely could. There's no promise. It's inescapable. It's imminent. And it's coming without warning. Psalm 73 says, They are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. It comes suddenly. It will come inescapably. It will come unexpectedly. And it will come for eternity. It is not something to take lightly. You might be sitting here going, Pastor Dave, I'm already saved. Why are you telling me this? Because you know what? You know people who aren't. And may God light a fire in us not to take it lightly that people are walking by us every day headed to hell without Christ. May we not take it lightly. May we be praying for our GFA missionaries. May we be praying for Carrie as she gets ready to go off to Africa. May we be praying. May we not just be so focused on our lives and not worried about those who are lost worldwide. That's the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. We need to begin here in Santa Cruz, but we need to have a worldwide... We shouldn't be missions-minded. I don't get that. Missions-minded. We all are called to be missions-focused. Amen? And it starts across the street, and it starts in our neighborhood. And he's saying, look, it's inescapable. It's imminent. It's coming without warning. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, you don't have to leave here without knowing the Lord. If you're worried about standing before Almighty God, as opposed, if you were on the plane that was shaken and you were like petrified about what would happen if you hit the ground, you know what? You can have the peace that surpasses all understanding and be like, Lord, whatever you want to do, it's all good. Because I know you and nothing else matters. Verse 36. For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. He will execute judgment and He will show compassion. It's either sinners in the hands of an angry God or children in the arms of a redeeming Savior. Which one are you? Sinners in the hands of an angry God or children in the arms of a redeeming Savior. He's Abba to me. Abba Father. He's Daddy. He's not someone that I'm afraid to meet. I can't wait to meet Him. I know Him already, but I can't wait to see Him face to face. And you know what? He will bring both judgment, but He will also bring compassion. Israel would not experience the compassion until something radical happened. Look at the rest of verse 36. He says, And have compassion on his servant when he sees that their power is gone and there was no one remaining bond or free. When would they experience his compassion? When their strength was gone, when they could turn nowhere else, when they trusted in no one else, when they sought only God. It's a great place to come to the end of yourself. It's a great place to find out that the gods you've been trusting in just don't work. It's a great thing when your bank account fails and everything else that you thought your health and everything else that you put your hope and your trust in comes to the end. Because then you have to look up. 
And what he's saying in this verse is, he'll show compassion when he sees that their power is gone. When they're at the end of themselves. When they're done. When they're helpless. When they're hopeless apart from him. Verse 37. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Now, he says, you know what? You're trusting in false gods? When you stand before me on the day of judgment, why don't you bring them with you and see how that works out? Where's the gods you sacrificed to? Why don't you bring them with you? Where's that big rock you were, you know, making sacrifices to? The one you were, you know, that piece of wood, that big idol, out, you know, the Buddha whose stomach, you, whatever you were worshiping. Bring it with you, and how's it going to help you on Judgment Day? How's it going to help you when you stand before Almighty God? He's saying, he says in there, they eat the fat of your sacrifices, drink the wine or drink. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your refuge. Put your hope in them. You know what? If you're putting your hope in anything you can lose, you're hopeless. You put your hope in the Lord, you, you, you can lose everything, and you'll still have hope. Because He's a faithful and a loving and a great God. He's saying, let that which you worshipped, invested in, your time, your finances, your efforts, let it come up and redeem you and rescue you and restore you. Verse 39. Now look at this verse. If you underline verses, you should underline this one. Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. Amen? Amen? There's no God besides me. I'm amazed at the number of people that try to use the Bible and say there are many gods. This is pretty clear. This and hundreds of other verses in the Bible. There is no other God besides me. And then look what he says. So he alone is God, right? There's no other gods. No one else brings judgment. No one else can read. Now look what it says that he does. He's God. He makes the rules, right? He's the only God. And look what he says. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Now, he's, this is a song. Remember? They're singing this song. They're to sing this song as they march into the land filled with idolatry. The next generation was to sing this song when all the temptation came. There's no other God besides me. I kill. No one else can deliver you from my hand. Only I can deliver you. This is the song they were to be singing when the temptation came up around them. You know, it's one of the reasons I love worship so much. One of the reasons I love to have worship in my car. It's kind of hard to get mad on the guy in front of you when you're singing, I love you, Lord, in your car. It, isn't it difficult? It ought to be, amen? And it's so important. So they were supposed to be worshiping God that they would not fall away from God. They were to be singing praise songs about what He had done and who He was and how great He is so that they might not be distracted by, no doubt, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. The fat of the land that would draw them away from the true and living God. He wanted to make it clear to them that He wounds and He heals, that He destroys and He makes alive, that there is no refuge from God's, re from God's vengeance. There's no false God who can protect you. I don't care how many tarot readings you get, you know, how many, you know, your karma and all this other stuff. By the way, as a Christian, that word ought to never come out of your mouth. 
That sounded legalistic, didn't it? Sorry. Okay, but you shouldn't say that. Karma. Well, yeah, what karma? It's all karma. Oh, stop it. It's not karma. Like it's some essence in the sky, and oh, it just floats around. Stop it. Bad. Con- now you ought to say sin has consequences. That's that's accurate. Amen. But don't think that you can, you know, somehow, you know, escape the judgment of God and find refuge in the superstitions of this world. Or even in a big bank account. Or a nice house. Or a great physique. Or anything else. You're not going to find it because it's not there. And God's saying, I raise up. I'm the one who can kill and make alive. So God kills. Anybody bothered by that? Sometimes people say, that, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Same God, amen? Same God. Abraham was saved by faith. You and I are saved by faith, amen? Same God. Gracious God, loving God, merciful God. The only people that he has to destroy are those who continue to reject him and won't accept his love and his grace and his mercy. And again, he's a faithful and a loving God. All men will stand before Almighty God, and the saved are looking forward to it, and the unsaved, it won't be pretty. Sinners in the hands of a mighty God. The world needs more godly fear. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Joseph Smith cannot deliver you from the hand of Almighty God. Knocking on doors will not deliver you from the hand of Almighty God. No matter how many good works you do, no matter how many rosaries you pray, no matter how many, no matter how many good works of any kind you do, you, nothing will deliver you except for the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. Word of God is so very clear. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say as I live forever. This is a gesture used in swearing an oath. And they were to swear by the living God. I raise my hand to heaven and I swear and I say as I live forever. They did so by saying, Lord, I'm I'm confessing before you. And then look what it says. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. God does suffer long, but he will not suffer always. He's a long-suffering God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. He would rather die than live without you. But righteous judgment is coming. And again, people don't like to hear that. But you need to, we need to hear it so we don't have to experience it. Amen? Your friends need to hear it so they don't have to face it. He is just, and he will execute righteous judgment. While his children can look forward to his return in loving anticipation, his enemies and those who hate him will face his righteous judgment. The word wet, where he says there, I, I wet my glittering sword, it means to sharpen his sword in preparation to bring vengeance. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. Now it's interesting. What do arrows do? They come suddenly, they fly swiftly, and they pierce deeply. And so will God's righteous judgment. It will come quickly. It will fly swiftly. It will pierce deeply. And then it says, and my sword shall devour flesh. flesh. The sword in the Bible is a type of God's word. And what will bring all flesh under judgment? The Word of God. God's Word will bring all men under righteous judgment. And then it says, The blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. 
the slains and the captives, the heads of the leaders, none will escape his judgment. Those who've hated God will be judged by him. Now, can I say this? We should not take joy in that. We should be broken by it. How many of you have ever taken joy in the fact that somebody that's really just a dog is going to face God one day? Raise your hand. If your hand's not up, you're lying. I've done it. Haven't you done it? Oh, you're oh, going to be hot for you. You know, have you ever done that? Right? You see somebody and they just, ah, right? People mocking God and you think, oh, man, I hope I'm right behind you in line on judgment day. You know, I just hope, can I stand off to the side? You know, and we should not be that way. Instead, we ought to be doing is praying for that person because there before the grace of God goes I. Amen? Because that was each one of us. We should not be surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner. Dogs bark, right? We shouldn't be surprised when dogs bark, and we shouldn't be surprised when someone who doesn't know God acts like they don't know God. We should be surprised when those who know God act like they don't know God. Amen? That starts with us. We need to look in the mirror. And then he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, wait a minute. He's been talking about vengeance. And then he says, rejoice, O Gentiles. Now, who's he talking to? Who's the Gentiles? It's us. Amen? It's everybody else. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, in the midst of vengeance, there's rejoicing. Why? Because it doesn't stop with, a joy, rejoy, with vengeance. There's also, as we're going to see, atonement. Praise God. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. But look at the next verse. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now, the song of Moses ends with rejoicing. That's the last verse of the song. So they're singing about the vengeance of God. They're singing about the righteous judgment of God. They're singing about how they're going to turn fat and turn away from God and turn to false gods. and You know, God heals and destroys and kills and makes alive and all those things. And then at the very end, he says, rejoice. Why? Because we don't have to face the vengeance. Why don't we have to? Last part of verse 43. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. The word atonement in Hebrew means to cover, cleanse, forgive, or pardon. Now, I hope I don't mess this up, but God kind of showed me a new thing this past week. Not new, just another way to explain something that's already true, right? It's important that we think about atonement and the grace of God, that we do look to the cross, but we must look more than there. Now, what do I mean by that? It's important to understand that for the cross of Christ to be a place of atonement, there must have been perfection leading to the cross. Jesus lived a perfect, holy life. Perfect. And always tempted like we are, and yet without sin. We, on the other hand, blew it big time. Sinned like it was going out of style. Adding zeros to the number of our sins. If my sins were pennies, we'd fill this room up ten times. It's a fact. So here I am, sinful, wicked. What do I deserve? I deserve to be separated from God. You know what I deserve? I deserve to be crucified. I deserve to suffer the most heinous, wretched death ever. Jesus, perfect, holy, sinless God, what does he deserve? Eternity in heaven. What does he deserve? No judgment whatsoever. When God sees him in his perfection, he sees him as righteous. 
You know what's incredible to me as I was meditating on that this this week? You know what happened? I deserved the cross. I deserved separation. He deserved to be seen as righteous. He deserved to be seen as holy. He deserved never to taste death. He deserved never to be separated from the Father. He deserved to enter into heaven and be there forever. I deserved to die. I deserved to be crucified. I deserved to be separated. You know what's awesome about grace? It simply does this. It takes what I deserve and gives it to the Lord and takes what He deserves and gives it to me. How great is our God? How great is our God? He took what I deserve and He paid the price for me and then He gave me what He deserved and gave it to me freely. When God the Father looks at me, He sees me through the righteousness of the Son. And when He looked upon the Son upon the cross for that moment, He saw the sin, my sin being placed upon Him. I should have been separated, but I'll never have to be. He should have never been separated, but He was out of His love for us. What a great God. That word atonement is a great thing. At one mint. At one with Christ. He took my place. He paid my price. And then He gave me His reward. What an awesome God we serve. And you know what? There is no other God besides Him. There's no other God that lives sinless and holy and perfect. There's no other man. There's no other person. There's no other way that could have atoned for your sin or would have atoned for your sin. Nobody else could have. And nobody else would have. But praise God that He did. Amen? May we not look at God's grace any other way. May we remember, He took what I deserved and He gave me His reward. And you know what? I've become His reward, it says in the Word. I'm His treasure possession. The sinner with all the millions of sins behind my name, every wicked, vile thing I've ever done, every thought I've ever had, the sin that nobody else knows about, He knows and He loves me anyway. That's grace. What can I do to wipe away those millions of sins? Can I knock on enough doors? Can I put enough in the, in the offering? Can I read my Bible enough to wipe it away? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. And I just, I love the way this song ends. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now he's talking about Israel here, but certainly it applies to every one of us. This should make the song end in rejoicing. Lastly, Moses' exhortation to the children of Israel. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all these words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to Israel. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall, shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. You know what I love about Moses? As we're going to see here in a moment, he was told because of his sin and misrepresenting God, he would never enter in. And then he's told on his 120th birthday to write a song and then to deliver it to the children of Israel. And he sits down in obedience and writes it and delivers it on the same day. I said it a few weeks ago. He could have said, come on, Lord. I'm 120. Don't I get a day off? It's my birthday. Shouldn't people be singing to me or something? 
have a manna cake, something, right? And instead, I love that Moses finished strong. My dad and I talk about this all the time. My dad, as most of you know, is a pastor at Calvary San Jose. And, you know, Lord willing, he has quite a bit of time left. But he's in his 70s now. And we talk all the time about finish strong. Finish strong. I'm writing letters to my daughter Ashley in India. She'd been there almost a month. And she got my emails every other day. And I would write the whole last week, Ash, the lives you're talking to today are just as important as the ones you talked to the first week. And no matter how tired you are, finish strong. You know what? Moses finished strong. He finished strong. He was faithful to the end. God is not through with us as long as we're breathing in and out. Amen? Amen? He's not done. If he was done, we'd be, in the, we'd be in heaven. But since we're not in heaven, he's not done. And he still wants to do more with us. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today. They were to be diligent to not only know, but to take heart the words of the law. Not just know what the word said, but apply it to their lives. It's one thing to know what the Bible says, and it's another thing to take it seriously. Too often, well, the Bible said, well, you know, come on. It's 2005. We don't have to, you know, come on, right? I've had people tell me, it's 2005. Okay, what's that got to do with anything? All the more reason we need to hold closely to the Lord based on the times we're living in, amen? And instead of saying, well, yeah, that's the Bible. No, it's the word of God for me. And I need to take it and apply it to my life. Pastor Dave, last Sunday you were talking about faith, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, and now you're telling me we need to walk in obedience. You know what? Both are true. Because I'm saved not by my works, but by faith in Christ. But you know what? My faith ought to produce obedience and good works. And when it does, it produces a fruitful walk. Remember that obedience to God is not a no-fun-bummer dad, but it's walking in the center of God's will who loves you and wants to protect you and keep you from harm and give you life and life more abundant. So that obedience produces that abundant life. And he says there, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, all the words, both the blessings and the cursings. You need to warn them both of You need to both encourage them and warn them. You need to tell your kids, Jesus loves you, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, by the way, that's about as good a song as there is. You know, what's better than that? That's a great song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. But we also need to tell them about the holiness of our God and the power of our God and the righteousness of our God and, yes, even the vengeance of our God and the, and the results of sin and disobedience. Verse 47. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. It's not futile for you to study God's Word. It's not useless for you to take it to memory. It's not futile for you to teach it to your children, because it is your life. The Word of God is your life. It transforms your life. You know why you guys live different than you used to? Holy Spirit. God changed you, He transformed you, but now He's implanted His Spirit within you, and through His Word, you're growing deeper in love with Him, and you can't help but live a different life. The Word of God is your life, it says, right there in that text. And by this Word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Now, to the children of Israel, He's telling them, if you walk in obedience to My Word, you'll prolong your days in the land flowing with milk and honey. 
Now, don't misinterpret that to think that it only means, oh, if I obey, then I get stuff. What he's saying is, if you obey, as we know from the types or the pictures in the Old Testament, that the crossing over the Jordan or the promised land is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. You want to have a life engulfed in the Spirit, walk in obedience. He'll prolong your days there. He'll continue to bless you there. You know what? We know it. We know what it's like to walk in such closeness with the Lord that we can hear Him whisper. How many of you know that? So close. He can say, Dave, yes, Lord, right? And then there's times when you're being a knucklehead like I can be, and he's like, Dave, 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 and I'm just whatever, you know, and I'm just too busy. And he's yelling at me because I'm so far away. I'm down the block and I've turned the corner, and I don't hear him anymore. But Lord, I want to be where I can hear you whisper. I want to be so close to you. And you know what? You want to prolong your time there? Be obedient. You want to prolong your time there? Stay desperate. Keep seeking his face. Start your day with him. Don't ever get to the point where you become reliant upon yourself. And then he says here, and I love it, and the word for futile, by the way, is worthless, empty, and vain. It's not worthless. It's not empty. It's not vain to teach your kids the word of God. It's not empty. It's not vain to pass it on to the next generation. It's not empty. It's not vain to get up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and teach the Bible for an hour. It's not in vain. I've had people, you know, people say, well, you can't do that. I'm like, people go see movies for three hours. Three hours. They go to baseball games. Some of them, four hours. I mean, forever. Nothing happens, by the way. (laughs) Nothing. Sit around and watch nothing for four hours. And yet when it comes to the Word of God, we've got to keep it down to about ten minutes. Don't lose people's attention span. Well, if I'm going to teach you guys the whole counsel of God as I'm commanded to, and I teach for 10 minutes, I better live to be 10,000. Because we'll never get through the Bible. Never happen. So it's so important that we study the whole counsel of God and that, again, we be, again, hungry for the Word. It's not futile. It's not futile to share it with your kids. It's not futile to share it with a person that doesn't want to hear it. Keep sharing it anyway. It's not futile. The Bible says that God's word is the source of life within the land for the children of Israel. And for you and I, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's God's direction manual for living a holy and set apart and fruitful life for walking in the center of God's will. And lastly, here's the, I said lastly once, that's, that's lying, isn't it? Second lastly, verse 48, Moses is now going to be commanded to go up to Mount Nebo. He doesn't die here, he, the next chapter we'll see it. But look what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses the very same day. So Moses goes out. He's obedient. He's faithful. He finishes strong. He delivers the word to the people as God had commanded him to. Go up to the mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. So he's going to go up, as we'll see next week. He's going to be able to overlook and look into the land of promise but he's not going to be able to enter in. Again, God's going to let him see it, but God's not going to let him enter into it. Why? Look at the next verse. And die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Or and, and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel." Why would Moses miss out on God's highest? 
because he did not hallow his name before his people. Why will we miss out on God's highest? Because we are afraid to proclaim his name boldly before those who need to hear it. Because we're afraid to stand up for him and to stand up with him. You know what? Can I encourage you? May we come to a place that when opposition comes, that instead of running away, that the Spirit of the living God would light a fire in us and we would say, charge instead. Amen? That when the difficulties come and the trials come, this guy Scott, I want us to pray for him because he has been warring into brick walls for the three years that he's been in, in New York. He was getting ready to fly back to New Mexico and to let it go. And God's so good how he brought us together through a mutual friend. We spent a day and a half together and I got an email today that he's not going back. Because I said, you know what? The Lord called you. The Lord's not done with you. But there's not much happening. How many people are in your church? There's 30 people. 30 souls. How many people have gotten saved? Probably 30. 30 people are going to heaven. You don't think there's fruit in your ministry? We sometimes can get so caught up with numbers that we forget that one person being saved is a miracle. And it's the greatest miracle of all. And there's nothing more important in the world than that. And that's what it's all about. And you know what? I'm just excited for him. I want to pray for, pray for his wife as well. It's a difficult time for them. But Moses, why are you going to miss out? Because he misrepresented God to the people. He was God's representative. And what did he do? He smote the rock in anger. And he was angry with the people. Who's God's representative in your office? Who's God's representative at your school? Who's God's representative in your neighborhood? Who are God's representatives in Santa Cruz County? We are. May we not miss out on God's highest because we misrepresent God to the people that he suffered and died for. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go go there, into the land which I am given to the children of Israel. So, the Song of Moses. It was given by God to remind them and the future generation of God's character, all that he had done for them, the source of their difficulties. When difficulties came, he didn't want them to think that the false gods had anything to do with it. He wanted them to know that it was his righteous vengeance. That those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Amen? And sometimes we sin and we blame the circumstances. No, it's the consequence of sin. And sin does indeed have consequences. Again, God's word is for you and I today. It reveals God's character, his love for us, All that He's done for us. The source of our difficulty when we rebel against Him. While we, again, where to turn to get right with God. So here's the choice, you guys. We can be sinners in the hands of an angry God. Or we can be children in the arms of a redeeming Savior. And you know what? There's no other place. There's no middle. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Or children in the hands of a redeeming Savior. And you know what? I'm so glad I'm his son because I don't deserve it. I'm the one who blew it and he gave me his reward and he took my punishment. What a great God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word and we thank you for the promises in it. Lord, I pray if there's even one person here tonight that doesn't know you, soften their hearts and open their eyes to their need for you. May none of us, Lord, on judgment day be sinners in the hands of of an angry God. Lord, may we be righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May you see us as you saw your Son. Lord, I pray again, if anybody's here that doesn't know you, Lord, 
May today be the day of salvation. May they turn to you even tonight. Father, I pray for the rest of us that know you already. Lord, I pray that we would not take lightly the Great Commission to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. May we not take lightly the commandments of your word. May we not see your word as futile. May we pass it down to the next generation. May we share your word with great boldness. May we be your representatives to a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. We can't wait to see you face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until you do, may we be busy about your work. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.